Welcome everybody to another exciting episode of Cloud and Clear. We've been on a very in-depth exploration of the uh, whole media entertainment strategy for Google Cloud, and I have the best guest I could probably get to help explain the whole lay of the land. Please meet Anil Jain, Managing Director of Media Entertainment Industry Solutions at Google Cloud. Hi, Anil. Hey, Tony. Good to be here. Good to see you. Thanks for joining me. It's actually on the heels of a major win that hit the Wall Street Journal Univision, and I want to hear all about that because I know that's sort of generally in, 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 in on your radar, probably worked on it. I don't know. I can't wait to learn more. I just know that my friends in New York at Google did that deal and it made the Wall Street Journal. That's all I know. Yeah, no, we're, we're all celebrating that one. It's a pretty momentous partnership for, for all of us. For sure. But before we get into all that, uh, I always like to have the audience uh, to have an opportunity to learn about people's careers and trajectory, about how they landed up where they are today. So Take us all the way back as far as you want to go and trace your career trajectory. I know it involves MIT, which I know only very smart people go to. But other than that, <laughs> tell, tell us some of that, how it all unfolded, where you ended up today. I'll try and keep it brief because it's a long and meandering story. So we, uh, my kids have heard it a couple times and they never want to hear it again. So I'll just keep it very <laughs> short. I've spent the latter half of my career in media and media technology, but interestingly enough, I didn't start in, in media or in software. I'm actually a material scientist by training. I have degrees in ceramic engineering science and material science and technology and policy. And it, it's for the latter two things that I went to MIT, uh, because one thing that has held true this whole time is what I love is the intersection of technology and people-centric problems in business. And to me, that's the intersection at where, at which I thrive. And that's been true kind of at every role I've had. And I've been in the semiconductor business. I've done a number of different software startups. I ran technology commercialization for a very large IP portfolio for the university systems in Arizona ran my own consulting firm. And then as part of that, ended up joining one of my clients, Unicorn Media became part of the leadership team there. We were one of the companies that pioneered server-side ad insertion or dynamic ad insertion, and we'd refer to it as cloud-driven now. And I got to sell that company to Brightcove, where I spent the next several years growing and building the global media business with a great team. And then Google called and I've been here for coming on two and a half years now, leading the media and entertainment industry team. The intersection you describe is not where a lot of people play well. I think if you have the skills to bring those things together, that is rare talent. That is also where I think a lot of the magic happens. It's where all the fun happens, I think too, because in my career, I've spent time in a lab doing research. I've been on the manufacturing floor. I've been in kind of cute, but what I really love is, and I, and to this day, it's the highlights of my job is, you know, working with customers as partners and solving interesting problems and understanding what they're dealing with on a daily basis and how the entire media value chain is being disrupted. And so what does that mean in terms of how they have to rethink the way they're working? And then similarly, internally, where we sit as an industry solutions team is really at the nexus of kind of all of our product engineering teams, our field sales and service organizations, our ecosystem partners, both tech partners and partners like SADA, uh, and then also our cross PA or one Google relationships. And it's the most exciting place for me to sit and for my team. And we have a lot of fun solving some really thorny problems and working with innovators within Google and outside of Google as well. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about the space is if you're Google, I think a, you, you have some very interesting and valuable assets as we saw talked about in the Univision deal, which we'll dive into later, but 
And then you also have, you're facing a dilemma where you're starting from behind because famously Netflix was born on AWS and really pushed the envelope of what AWS could do for so many years, way before Google and Microsoft were in the game. And so they have that anchor to always go back to and say, Hey, look what Netflix is doing. Hey, that being said, we know that there's certain aspects of what Google cloud and GCP specifically brings to the table that is differentiated, but also at the very least is now in the most, even the most traditional customers, everyone's getting pressed to be multi-cloud, to do have more than one cloud, whether it's for risk reasons or commercial reasons or technical best of breed, best bespoke strategy. So how do you balance like just the journey of coming from behind, but then having to educate the market on all the ways that they should be considering GCP? Yeah. So a lot of different aspects in that question, Tony. So let me get a few and then whatever I miss, we can go back to and I'm happy to highlight. First of all, obviously we have in the kind of hyperscale cloud platform space, a set of great peers that certainly are on the top of everyone's list when we, we work around cloud and when our customers and partners think about who they need to operate with. I've been here, to, you know, just under two and a half years. And so I have a lot of experience with some of the other clouds as well. And I think the reality is for Google cloud, two and a half years ago, we started the next phase of our evolution. As you've seen in the market, it's, we're pretty ambitious and moving very fast under Thomas Curian's leadership and an incredible team that he has assembled globally. And rather than speaking about the competitive dynamics, I will just tell you that we know what we're going after and we have uh, every aspiration and ambition to, to create value with our customers and with our partners and collaborate on pushing the boundaries. I, I will tell you the thing that excites me about media, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of kind of the blocking and tackling of cloud enabling workflows. And I think that's yeah. very important, but what I think every media organization is thinking about, whether it's overtly part of their regular strategic process and planning, or is kind of hovering below the surface, but top of mind subconsciously. And that is what's that next horizon of audience experiences, right? right? There's a lot of boundaries that are blurring between different traditional or conventional segments of media and entertainment. And as these things come together, the reality is we, one thing that everyone has in common is consumer audiences, a litany of choices uh, of how they want to spend their time, how they want to be entertained and informed. And I think all of us collectively need to think about what are we doing to enable the media and entertainment industry to actually prepare for and deliver those transformative audience experiences. Nothing has accelerated that transformation in this pandemic itself. Concurrence of being stuck at home, challenges of like just production of new content. You saw the rise of international content. I remember because being stuck and watching, you know, Netflix or whatever with the kids or Disney plus, I was like, wow, there's a, there's a high degree of like Australian content now. Cause like basically our production capabilities had switched to a halt. There was still new content. So like the delivery modality, definitely being challenged, the volume of content being challenged and also where people could consume. I think multi-screen had been a thing for a while, but not in this very high revenue band where it was like the theatrical piece is not being disrupted. And so that's created a whole bunch of challenges and opportunities. And I think it was maybe 
Trolls, the second Trolls movie was one of the first to be like, we have to skip the theater entirely. We're going to sell it at a $30 rental or whatever it was. But then somehow it made $150 million or something like doing it. The reality is, you know, you're right. The modality has changed. I, I think what's happened is we haven't gotten rid of modalities. We've expanded the number of different choices that people have. And if you're a media company, you have to figure out how to serve all. And that's right. part of the challenge, right? You have to have the agility and the flexibility to be responsive to these new things that arise, new consumption patterns, new content formats, new business models that people want to, you know, consume using, right? Whether it's ad supported or subscription based or time limited durations of I'm going to subscribe for a couple months and then I'm going to come back when you entice me to come back, or I'm going to transact to do the direct to home online streaming premiere instead of in lieu of or in parallel to a theatrical release, all of that exists. And you commented on international years ago. I remember thinking about this and I was thinking I was speaking at like digital Hollywood and I, I told the story. The reality is I was, I tend to watch Netflix on my treadmill, right? On, on a, on a tablet. And, and I was running out of things to watch that were, but I could watch independently because otherwise there's things we watch together as a family and you don't want to go ahead and so all of this. Funny, and you say that. <laughs> I spend so much of my Peloton time, like I'll turn off Alex or whoever the famous you know person is, I'll mute them and I'll be like, this is when I'm watching my show that nobody else should or is wanting to watch. I do the same thing on my Peloton. So, so when in doing that is, and this is years ago, right? This is now it's exploded, but I, I like a lot of historical medieval kind of genre that's one of the genres I really enjoy yeah. and I came across this mini series it's what we used to call mini series I think only six parts or whatever it might have been at the time that had to do with the Knights Templar and it was Swedish and but it was Swedish and it also had English in it and there were subtitles and I enjoyed it immensely with the subtitles and I will tell you that it has opened up an entire world because I grew up as a son of Indian immigrants um, enjoying uh, a lot of multicultural Bollywood content, a lot of U.S. content. And so I've always been inclined to have a wide range of content I can consume, but now it's just increased 10 or a hundred fold because it doesn't matter, right? The quality, the, the production quality is there. The stories are universal. So there's so much more. And again, this has changed the paradigm, right? It, on one hand, it means there's so much more content to compete against as audiences have fragmented. How do I now focus on delivering content that consumers will value because they have so much choice, but similarly, it's an opportunity. So when you talk about all of these streaming platforms that have launched in the last 12 to 18 months, they are very much planning global expansion, right? How can we take every one of these streaming platforms and roll them out to 200 countries around the world. And, and I think, I think that creates some very interesting dynamics in the industry, but certainly a lot of challenges for media executives that are looking to build and run these businesses. Yeah. And I think Netflix announced this year that they'll spend $17 billion or something on content. And you're like, that's more than Google spends on data centers. I think Google spends like 10 billion on data centers a year. And then you're also thinking like, what studio? Because Netflix is not even a traditional studio, right? They certainly didn't start that way. But what studio spends $17 billion on content? Maybe Disney can afford to do that, but who else could really do that? Then, then they're competing, like they, they, they create it, but then they're competing immediately after that because of 
the sprawl of content that inevitably has been created. Because now you have the old stuff coming back too in these new streaming platforms, like the entire all of MASH and all of Survivor on Paramount Plus and all, there's just so much content. The competitive dynamics between media companies has really been highlighted and it creates this tiering, if you will, because very few, like you said, can actually spend that kind of money. The data that is shown in those couple different sources that there'll be over a hundred billion dollars in new content investment, new content investment over the next few years. And so there's all this content being created. Plus, as you said, unlocking the value of content that's buried in these archives, right? There's so much out there and yet people don't get tired of consuming the content. And then we talk about gaming and we talk about social video. There's so much content being created in different non-traditional or non-conventional forms of media that every media company has to think about how do all these things come together as part of a portfolio that they have to serve. Yeah, I think part of what we're trying to figure out, we is like the whole industry and, and like people who serve the industry, like us, the you and I is what are these new consumer habits that have been created and also this new capability that Khan has frankly enabled. Hey, I can see every episode of any show ever made as I, as long as I subscribe to that, whatever plus service, how much of these behaviors will carry forward, I think in a post pandemic kind of world and how does it translate to keeping engagement of users, but also the wallet share, because you and I were laughing about this the other day, like cutting the cord has been a conversation for 20 years and because the promise of it partly was like cable is really expensive. <laughs> Cut the cord. And sure, when there was like just Hulu and Netflix, you cut the cord, you could save a hundred bucks a month or something, internet plus two $20 services. But now consumers now, because they've been stuck at home are paying for all of it. They're like, just like me, you have kids, you have Paramount plus and Disney plus and discovery plus and Netflix and Hulu and YouTube TV and HBO max, <laughs> but like how long, right? How long? Is that going to go? It's been the question that has been discussed. You went from the bundle that was very limited in terms of your choice and flexibility to the skinny bundle to no bundle. And yet in the end, what really matters ultimately is the value of content and how people value it. And I think that again, it feels like this is a common theme when we talk about this inevitable journey to the cloud, whether it's hybrid or multi-cloud is it's all about flexibility and that's flexibility for the consumer and flexibility for the one providing the content and the service. And the reality is, yes, you may have six or seven OTT services you subscribe to, but you're not, you have the choice to actually size that however you want. And before, when you buy the bundle, you didn't really have that much choice. Maybe there eventually were two or three options. 12 channels and didn't watch the other 400. Yeah, it was problematic. You know, as a consumer, what kind of throws the whole thing in the air, live sports, man, live sports, local live sports breaks the whole thing. And it's just so frustrating being in a big market. Like you are, like I am, I'm like, why can't I get the Lakers unless I have the local cable channel? Like that doesn't make sense. Like I'm willing to pay for it, but they have a 15 year deal with a local cable company. And I can get live sports in your neighborhood, but I can't because I don't live there, but I can get the Lakers. So I think live sports is like the last 
to this OTT revolution. We just need to fix this whenever the Lakers new contract and the Dodgers contract comes up. And that's the point, right? I think that if you talk to any sports league or sports platform out there, they're all thinking about to what extent do they fully, you know, dive into the direct to consumer model. And they're all doing elements of it today, right? I think everybody right. has to. All I think pass and all that exactly, stuff. yeah, exactly. And, and and like MLB pioneered this stuff early on for sports and for the industry many years ago. It's all about the economics, right? So if the rights deals are still in effect, if they have long durations, it's a lot of value. In the end, they're making the right business decisions for their shareholders and their constituents. Um, and I think, I don't think the future is black and white. I think the reality is they, they end up again, managing a portfolio, right? Where is it better for me to do a license deal? Because remember when all of these organizations, both sports leagues, as well as studios, broadcasters, streaming platforms that are kind of greenfield and net new, all of them still have the same challenge, which is now they have to have very strong relationships directly one-to-one -one with their consumer audience. And that takes. A lot of work, a lot of investment, a lot of data analytics, which is another area, of course, that we focus on at Google Cloud. But those relationships, managing them so that you can create affinity and long-term engagement and mitigate churn and know when, okay, what Tony likes in terms of content and on what platform and in what model and in what format, how can I make a lot of decisions ahead of time to give him the optimal viewing experience, right? Because we're all creatures of habit and we all want convenience. Yes, I want choice, but we also know the paradox of choice. So eventually, can I settle on a number of services that I know me very well, and therefore I'm always going to have a great experience whenever I decide that it's time yeah. to engage with that content. There's just so much processing involved, like media and entertainment by nature is extremely compute heavy, extremely storage heavy network heavy, lots of opportunities for ML, AI kind of capabilities. And you're talking about indexing and cataloging or subtitling millions of hours of content. Like it's impossible to, and now it's going to, soon it's going to be dubbing. It's going to be hopefully like unlock many more audiences because the work required to even localize certain things won't be there. But then relevancy is just the birth of google.com was celebrated by its ability to figure out relevancy and text fundamental type of search, which is text search, but how, how do we have these systems understand me by my viewing habits and also understand the content that is available at a met metadata level that's not even required for someone to go tag. That's the really cool potential of when I have 15 services, literally a million shows, when I turn on my Google TV or Apple TV or whatever, what is it going to recommend? that I watched. You've touched upon again, a number of areas, right? From the, the personalization of content experiences, which involve recommendations, but also involves discovery and driving engagement. But you've also talked about the intelligence about what's in the content itself in terms of just relying on human entered metadata. So both of those things are very relevant. And when we think of data and processing that data and then applying machine learning to it, it's all different types of data. It's content as data, it's network performance and quality of service and quality of experience data and telemetry and instrumentation. It is user data, right? In terms of behavior patterns and the data we have about what works from an experience and a monetization standpoint, all of those things need to come together, which is why I, I think this is definitely an area for us that we lean into with a lot of our, our media organizations, very much focus on, can we 
think about a comprehensive data platform, right? Where you are uh, taking a data lake approach and pulling together all these disparate sources and then providing that very high speed, highly performant data processing uh, and analytics engines to actually extract useful insights that you could do something with. And then part of what we do from a solutions perspective is package that up in a way that reduces the time to deployment and time to value that an organization has to spend or wait in order to actually derive that value. Because all of these things really affect both the top and bottom line in a very significant way. So we're seeing a lot of traction there with the industry. I think this is an industry-wide story, but it's certainly an area where, where Google shines. And I think what we, you and I talked about briefly when we had a chat a couple of weeks, something that's been you know, fairly well publicized is the work that we're doing with Fox Sports in an area called intelligent asset management. And really what that fundamentally breaks down to is using our AI platform and capabilities, along with our abilities for video search, of course, layer on top of storage, our infrastructure capabilities, is we're working to actually co-innovate with Fox Sports, where they have a, their innovators, their forward-thinking, Brad Zager, Dustin Myers, their team, they really leaned in and said, this is what we want to sign. And it aligned very much with where our strengths align to. And, uh, and so we've been working together to actually apply uh, ML models, um, search capabilities to their, their large archive of sports content well, and, and footage. They have so much of it, right? Like and they have so much and they have people who, who have been searching to, how do we tell better stories? How do we find content that we know exists and package that in a way very quickly? So as we can entertain and inform our viewers, and we know we have this content but it's not just readily available. So we're, we'll be demonstrating some things later this year as well, but that is an area where really, I think one of those examples of applying AI ML to media archives really shines, right? Because you can look oh, at yeah. things that are not just conventional meta metadata, but even train models to understand actions. Like when did a particular receiver complete a touchdown pass from this team at this location? Yeah. In yeah. history, pull all that up in a matter of seconds. That's the excitement. My wife worked at as a production attorney at Access Hollywood, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And I remember when video logging and cataloging was literally like type it in, watch it, make notes so that you have some hopes of searching for it and finding it. But sometime in the future, should you be looking for this content? And there's just like the volume today and the details is like impossible. But this is an area, and I want to pick your brain on this, where I feel like, again, Google has some distinct advantages and capabilities, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We know the photo of course. recognition because we use Google Photos, and I think even a, a bunch of my friends on iOS, they're, they're cute Google Photos users just because, like, they can find stuff and stuff that they didn't even tell Google what was in the photo like i can be like a beach like i'm at the beach and it just like finds all the pictures where you're at the beach but then you like take that to the to like the video context and google has some amazing apis literally industry leading apis just around that yeah no absolutely you're doing a great job of actually presenting the value i, I will say this that I, I end up in executive briefings with our customers talking about this quite a lot because i think this is showing tangible value that the photos example is certainly one. But Sundar Pichai said to the industry and the world that Google is an AI first company. And he made that statement in 2017. And if you think about 
all of Google's high scale, very popular products that all of us use on a daily basis. So all of those have inherently AI and ML built in, right, to the underlying products to make them smarter and most use and more useful uh, for customers because it's all about respecting what the time the user has invested in our product. So how do we make sure we continue to give you more value? The way I like to put it is that same philosophy and kind of innovation and, and engineering and product expertise is what we bring from a Google Cloud perspective in a set of products. So we have an entire AI ML platform provides these building blocks for things like video and vision and image intelligence. And, and there's more of those services becoming available on a regular basis. And of course, from an industry perspective, we're applying them to industry specific solutions across all of our, and, and the, the beauty of it is. It doesn't matter whether your organization has a deep bench of data scientists and ML experts or not. We, yeah, there's, there's no, do not. <laughs> the most organizations do not, or, or they're very expensive and very highly sought after, but we, we've got capabilities that you can delve into. Even if your organization says, look, we have the product vision and we know what we want to do, but we're not the data scientists or the ML experts, nor do we have the resource to go build it. But we can use the capabilities, both pre-trained models that we have, as well as the tool sets that don't require data scientists. Yep. But on the, on the other side, if you do have that deep bench of capability, you actually can, you know, work deeply with our products as well. So, you know, that spectrum of capabilities available. And obviously we, we like to have our customer uh, success speak for itself as um, more and more of these capabilities are launched. But yeah, this is definitely an area for us. AI and ML applied to solving real world problems in all of our key industries is yeah. very core to uh, our strategy. And by the way, in a lot of ways, how the AI kind of disappears into the workflows or like disappears into the background. We're seeing it in Google workspace, for instance, which we have a ton of ME customers that are on workspace and you just love these features being born and it's doing a bunch of things. That's completely, it's invisible to you, which is the point. Like it's just because part of the workflows, key distinct advantages there for Google, for sure. But the thing I, I really want to make sure we spend a little time on is Univision. It was a great win and, and it read to me like so many of these other mega wins for Google have been, whether it's like Sabre or, or Activision Blizzard King or Mayo Clinic or whatever that you read about though, the headline generating massive deals is they're not about storage, compute, feed speeds, migrate your data center from A to B. They are so much more holistic geared towards true industry transformation, business transformation, business model evolution, but also how they clearly, and, and nowhere have I read it even as clearly as I did in this wall street journal article, the phenomenal assets that Google brings to, to bear, which frankly, no, no one else has <laughs> as far as what was how, how it came around, but that's just for me reading from the outside. Uh, I'd love to hear from your perspective about how that whole deal went down, why Google won, because it's fascinating and it's very hot off the press. Yeah, no, obviously these are literally the Univision deal plus the Grupo Globo announcement that we had a couple of weeks ago. Still, right? both, 
Brazil. Yeah. So uh, Grupo Globo, great partner, incredibly forward thinking, very large media conglomerate that has pay TV, has direct to consumer, has their own really modern studios. They do their own productions and they're like the, in the Guinness World Book of Records for telenovela production and they have <laughs> like amazing vfx amazing. and rendering yeah. capabilities they're a pretty phenomenal company uh but the reason i mention this right is you're just sharing what i can publicly with both organizations you, you've stated this when liken them to some of the other kind of transformative deals in both of those cases if you read what is published by univision by group of globo and by google and google cloud it is about transformation these are what we actually refer to as transformation partnerships not vendor relationships right. where we are selling a bag of infrastructure products, right? That's not the goal. This is really about, and this is the, the kind of the, the beauty of what TK and Ed team have brought from a leadership perspective is that it's about customer empathy, really understanding, putting yourselves in the shoes, of the customer, and then building solutions and capabilities that address that transformation, right? Because that's about creating and capturing value for everyone involved. So for Globo, for Univision, these are, these are both transformation partnerships. The similarities I'll tell you are that, you know, one, they are, they require from the top down mandates and buy-ins that from a board level, that this is the transformation, that mm. journey that we need to be on for our future in order to, th to thrive, right? In the future of media. And both of them did that. They are using kind of Google cloud capabilities across all of their operations from things like data center migration and moving the media supply chain and workflows to the cloud and using data analytics and AI ML to transform consumer experiences. Those are kind of commonalities, but of course there's uniqueness in each deal. We are doing co-innovation with both of them where we are just, again, taking something off the shelf and applying it, really saying, okay, how do we change the, what I talked about before, what's that next generation media experience? In the case of global, I can talk about is we're working with cross cloud and our Android TV team with group of global to help them address what they refer to TV 2.5, right? And so this is really you take over the top and over the air television you know, experiences and combine them so that on your connected TVs, you can get the, the beautiful linear experience plus take advantage of kind of the internet delivered experiences, whether additional features, uh, yeah, additional sure. services, or even monetization. So that's the kind of excitement that is happening. And, you know, something that I think gets everybody charged up at the executives on both sides of the partnership. Yeah, I, I, those are the ones that, that excite me the most because when I look at those deals, I think like only Google could have put that together, right? In that particular way. And I also applaud and I'm so impressed by the people within those organizations that are making these decisions. Neil, you've sold and worked in, in organizations for a long time. It is not easy if you're the board of Univision or a Grupo Globo or the CEO or the CIO or whatever to say, like, we're going in this direction. That is a completely new path. No, I, look, this is, it, it's really interesting because we're talking about this. I keep using the phrase of the shift to the direct to consumer paradigm, right? That direct to consumer paradigm has been around for 20 plus years. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember a technology um, called point cast. So when I, you know, worked at my first job out of grad school. I used to have this kind of point cast application that was doing media streaming and God, that was so long ago, but the notion has been there, 
as with much of technology innovation, it takes a long time to get to mass adoption. And what's interesting in media specifically, and I can say this coming at it from a technology perspective, as opposed to being an operator of a media business, is that there's been a lot of inertia, right? A lot of entrenched inertia preventing wholesale adoption until yeah. recently, because there are very large, these are very large businesses that serve millions upon millions of consumers. And they have, as we talked about before, existing business models that they're relying on. And so to do your duty to your customers, do your duty to your fiduciaries, it, it handcuffs you to some extent in terms of how much you can invest in the future. And think about every media company that has a, every broadcaster that has a linear business today, they have to continue to operate that business while they also move Absolutely. to direct to consumer. Absolutely. So that's, that's where the CFOs. You know, and the CTOs have a dialogue around well, the CTO says, look, I know where the future is headed and we have to invest in these capabilities. And the CFO says, yeah, I get it, but show me what the payback period is. Right. Cause it's a lot longer yeah. than I like, would want. Right. We're still printing money here. So why am I doing, doing that? But I'm really empathetic because being a seller, like all CEOs are sellers too, being in the room, we're arguably much smaller deals, somebody choosing the non-incumbent path, like the easiest thing to do, the thing you don't get fired for right away is just like buying more of the stuff you already have or the newer version of the stuff you already have. And I just like, it's it just, I know what it takes to get those kind of deals done. I can only imagine it. The confidence that the executives have to have, because this has to go well. And so I applaud you and that whole team. I think it was Clark and his team out East that kind of got it over the line on the field, but. Man, I just know, I, I, I know the feeling of choosing what is the opposite of what anybody else would do in a lot of cases, which is just stay on the same path, right? If you, you want to be risk averse, you want to not be fired. That's not, yeah, we're going to choose Google cloud, At Google cloud. I'm going to go and completely transform this. Nobody's ever done it before. And I just applaud and I'm in awe of the decision makers that have the fortitude to do that. But I know again, coming really from TK and Rob down to uh, vertical strategy to your leadership. It's you got to look at these people in the eye and, and be like, we got you. We are going to co-innovate. We're going to support you. We got to get, figure out the commercials. We're going to figure out the PSO strategy. We're going to figure out because the partner strategy. Absolutely. I appreciate your words and your, your compliments. I will say the real visionaries here are actually the customers, right? Because for them taking these bold steps, a lot of media leaders are visionary. Right. If you look across all the media, and this is not just in the US, right? Global, all of these people are in tune with a very dynamic set of variables that they have to optimize against to make, to take risks and make investments. And I think the thing that is, uh, that is awesome about wh where we are today is that an environment has been created where it is now a compelling event, right? right that, sure. Like you have to do this, right? Because your competitors are doing it. And in fact, we know it works because every single media executive is a consumer themselves. So totally. they have to do it. I say this to media customers all the time. It takes the media company, it takes a hyperscale cloud provider platform like, like Google, and it takes our partners. The three kind of groups have to work together in order to make this successful. If one group does not lean in or does not participate, it makes it a lot more challenging. And luckily we have an entire ecosystem in the media industry that is moving in that direction. Yeah. And taking the executives to the highest level, taking the board with you on this journey, on this multi-month journey, I think it's just very wise and often required here. I remember, uh, big decisions of upgrading the incumbent 
doesn't get board level attention or input often. Hey, we're doing this thing completely new. It's not, even a, it's, not even, it's not the dollar value of these alone. It's the, the fortitude to do something different. I think it helps to take those decision makers along the whole way. Yeah, it's necessary. But I think the excitement, Tony, that you feel that I feel about what's happening here is we're going to see a lot more of this and we're just getting started. So we're yeah. really excited and hopefully everyone is paying attention because I, I, and I think they are these kind of couple announcements we've had recently, um, with Global and Univision, our, our landmark deals in the industry, but they build on top of the work we're doing with Fox Sports, with Major League Baseball, and yeah. a litany of media partners globally who thankfully are very keen on working together and totally. we start to do a lot more collaboration. Totally. And then Google makes the ideal partner for a lot of reasons, global network, latency, ML capabilities. Google doesn't have a studio, all these reasons, but we're really excited. The vertical strategy is just Really, I think starting to, after a couple of years, it's still very new for Google. If you think about the industry strategy, starting to bear fruit. And cause now we have people at Google and your partners talking to customers in their language, people like you operated in their shoes. I think that makes, it makes a huge difference. And thank you so much for coming on the show, but also for being a great partner at M&E. We share a bunch of great logos together. And I know we're just scratching the surface of what's, what's possible. So we're really bullish on, uh, on the rest of 21 and, and the years ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, likewise, thank you for your partnership. There's no shortage of on my LinkedIn feed, seeing all the great things Sada is doing and, and doing with us. Uh, in fact, I got to say, there was so busy. There's so much going on. I learned a lot about Google cloud. when I see things that your team has posted and I have a lot of colleagues and friends that are also at Sada that I love to work with. And so we're yeah. excited and we're very bullish as well. We're, we don't mind being opinionated. All we do is Google cloud. There's a reason we've chosen this path. We feel like it's our job to contribute to the narrative and the zeitgeist together. But thank you so much, Anil. We have a great year ahead of us and these wins really get us excited. There's nothing that you and I love more than a win like the Univision one and the group of global one, and hopefully a, a bunch more will ride together. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to it, Tony. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cloud & Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and & Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.